When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Up the Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we talk Michigan bird hunting and Labrador retrievers with Paul Vasepka. Welcome back to the show for episode number 117. podcast is presented by onyx hunt creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters use the promo code pup20 to save 20 percent on your onyx hunt subscription today and by yukonuba premium performance dog food strong focused ready for anything that is a yukonuba dog and by cz usa shotguns 
Shotgun's design with the Upland Hunter in mind. They've got pumps, semi-auto, side-by-sides, over-unders. CZ USA has a shotgun for you. Head over to cz-usa.com to see their complete selection. And by Gumleaf USA, high-quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots. Use the promo code PUP10 to save 10% on your next pair of boots from Gumleaf USA. And by Dogtra Collars. I'm in the second year of using my Dogtra 2700 T&B Dual. Love that collar system. And I've actually got another dog now. She's a little bit small to wear that collar, but she will be wearing it soon enough. It's my go-to system. I've been using Dogtra Collars for about the past six years. Head over to Dogtra.com to learn more about all their products. And by ESP Electronic Shooters Protection. I was out at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp yesterday shooting some new double guns, wearing my ESP Apex custom molded hearing protection. Love those things. I can hear what I want to hear. They block out what I don't want to hear. The best hearing protection I've ever worn, without a doubt. If you want to check them out and get yourself a pair, head over to ESPamerica.com. And by Trinity Kennels, home of the Epignol Breton. If you want to learn more about Trinity Kennels, check out Project Up and Podcast episode number 88 with jeff and josh Ryder, and you can also visit trinitykennels.org and finally by dakota 283 kennels kennels built to last a lifetime one piece rotomold design frame steel door everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip head over to dakota283.com and use the promo code pu10 to save 10 percent on your next kennel purchase from dakota283 all right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Jackson R. After hearing about a season-ending injury to my older dog, Hartley, Jackson reached out, said he was going to be in the area, extended an invite for me to come and hunt with him and his dogs, and I consider that a pretty meaningful contribution to the Project Upland podcast. So thank you, Jackson. I'm going to send a T-shirt your way. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show, leave us a rating, Leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. You can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, one quick heads up. Later this week, I'm going to be joining the Rough Grouse Society on their Minnesota virtual fundraising happy hour event. As most people are aware, most of the conservation organizations had to cancel all of their banquets this year. I myself am involved in the Duluth Superior Chapter of the Rough Grouse Society. We have a banquet in April. It was canceled this year. So in order to make up some ground and fundraising for habitat and conservation, we're getting all the Minnesota chapters together to host a virtual event. It's going on right now. There's silent auction, write-in auction items that you can bid on. And on Thursday night, we're going to have a happy hour. I'm going to join Mike Nadusky, Ben Jones, John Steigerwald, Ashley Peters, probably a whole bunch of other folks to talk rough grouse society american woodcock society conservation habitat and hopefully raise some needed funds for conservation in minnesota i'm really looking forward to it and i hope to see some of you there check it out at roughgrousesociety.org all right let's jump into today's conversation with a listener of the podcast and now a guest of the podcast paul vasepka paul is out of michigan he hunts grouse he's a nerd about it like me he reached out to me said he hunts with labs and if I was ever interested in having a little bit more conversation about hunting grouse with flushing dogs, he would be happy to share some of his stories and experience. I'm really glad I took Paul up on that offer because Paul and I had a great time chatting. We talked all things labs, rough grouse, a little bit of waterfowl mixed in, 
Had a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast, Paul Vasepka. Paul Vasepka. How'd I do? Perfect. The J is silent as we rehearsed. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the Project Upland podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Nick. I'll I'll give you some props. I uh, I just shot you a little bit of a barb that said all you guys do is talk about pointing dogs, and there there are a collection of of perhaps wiser or dumber men that uh, that chase grouse with Labradors, and you took the bait, and you said <laughs> I'd love to talk to you, and and uh, so here we are. So thanks very much for having me. Yeah, uh, it's my pleasure, Paul. And this is. It's so funny how this is, I guess it's not coincidence, but how this has come together. My day today has been quite busy, but it's been a fun one. And like you said, you are not the first person to email me uh, with that sentiment. And I'm certain you won't be the last, but hopefully we're working on that a little bit. But you emailed me and said, you know, you talk a lot about pointing dogs, kind of, hey, what about the flushers? And I responded to you as I do most people that ask that. It isn't intentional, at least consciously. But I know that I've been sucked into this world of pointing dogs and my network consists of a lot of those types of people. I haven't had the good fortune of hunting over flushing dogs like the ones that you run or like the people that I talked to earlier today run. And so I've got to make a concerted effort to get out there and talk to folks just like you and just like the two guys I interviewed this morning, which is bringing me back around to why this is so funny. Paul, you are a Michigan grouse hunter. You hunt with a lab, and based on our conversation within the last five minutes, you like hockey, which is cool. This morning, I interviewed Fritz and Rick Heller, who probably are known to a lot of the listeners of this podcast, but they are Michigan grouse hunters. They run labs, and they like hockey, and those are the three, those are the three things that we talked about this morning. So I'm just going to keep on going here, Paul, and talking labs and grouse and hockey all day. That sounds like a pretty good day to me. <laughs> so it's, that's not a bad day. Not a no. bad day at all. Not at all. Well, Paul, start us off a little bit. Tell us, tell us where you're at, where you're located, and then I'm going to rewind a little bit, and I want to hear your story and how you got into this whole mess. Yeah, thanks. I uh, so you, you did tell me that you were going to talk to some other lab guys, so I, I, I'm I'm pretty cool with that. Um, I I live in the center of Michigan, so uh, in a small town called Midland. Um, I work for a large chemical company that's in the middle of Midland, Michigan, so everybody can figure that one out without naming them. Props to the company, although they don't donate to Ducks Unlimited or Grouse, uh, Rough Grouse Society for some reason. Uh, however, they do have a nice sustainability mission. Anyways, if you look at the map, you can see that town close to the Saginaw Bay, which we'll get to later, I think. One of the reasons that I have Labrador Retrievers and um, it's kind of on the line of agriculture and bush, like a lot of states have. And, uh, of course, bush means rough grouse. The state of Michigan is a huge owner of state land, and they have a forest management program. Sometimes they follow it. Sometimes they're behind. Um, but we have the the blessing, really, of... Uh, of access to all that public land. And it's not too far from where I live. I think I told you the other day, um, I don't travel too far. I've been kind of all over the state, but usually it's within an hour of my house and my closest 
cover to my door is I think eight minutes from door to tailgate. So uh, that's that's pretty pretty good living. Pretty fortunate to have that sort of resource. Yeah, you bet. I think anybody that can get into quality wild bird hunting in under an hour in today's world, I think, is, should probably be counting their blessings. But certainly, uh, certainly, you are appreciative of that, and that's evident. It's a blessing. Yeah. Well, you didn't always live in Michigan, Paul. No. So I, my background, I grew up in your home state, Nick, so a few hours south of you in the Twin Cities, um, not five minutes from bird cover. Um, yeah. My father was a truck driver, um, so I grew up right in St. Paul, um, and yet he he was a, a farmer, um, or his father was a farmer, so he grew up on a farm in south central Minnesota, so there's the roots to uh, hunting, and uh, more from my mom's side of the family, same small town, south central Minnesota. My grandpa on my mom's side was a bird hunter, a pheasant hunter, duck hunter, deer hunter. Uh, my dad's family was more farmer gatherers, but he entertained my fascination with dead stuff. Again, maybe not politically correct, but I think, you know, you we all share it. Yeah. Uh, and like when my grandpa would get home from duck hunting, I would just dig into the pile and look at the birds. And it was just the coolest darn thing. And I pestered my dad over and over and over to take me hunting and started with 22 rifles and squirrels. Um, and that was kind of how I started. I was more of a rifle shot than a than a shoddy gun guy. But then... Got to go pheasant hunting, missed a lot of pheasants with 410s, kind of a similar to story to, <laughs> to everybody. Missed a lot of rough grouse with 410s. Yeah. <laughs> um, couldn't, couldn't figure out what in the world was going on. Finally moved up to a uh, 16 gauge. And like many of the people on your pod, I could walk you to the spot where I shot my first grouse on the wing and still remember it like it was yesterday. I was, I don't know, I was probably eight years old and I'm 58 now and it's uh, as vivid a memory as I've had in my life, right? So That's cool. Yeah, so my uncle, my mom's brother, was again one of my hunting mentors. So he would take me duck hunting, and then there come the dogs. So he was a Chesapeake guy for some reason. <laughs> I think he was a stubborn man, so he wanted a stubborn dog, I think. <laughs> but again, mostly through waterfowl, we pheasant hunted with chesapeake's as well then i went to graduate school unfortunately right that's kind of a self-consuming exercise uh, i had to put hunting aside for a few years moved here to michigan um, and wanted to take the sport back up and you just get lucky right one of my friends i i would drive by his house and i could see stuffed birds in his window i could see a duck boat hanging outside of his house. And one night this guy was out by his duck boat and I just pulled in, introduced myself and said, I don't know anything about anything. And he was one of the kindest guys on the world and wow. still a friend of mine. And he took me duck hunting here in Michigan. And then I wanted to get a dog and started asking around at work. And somebody said, well, you should talk to this one guy. He hunts with Labradors all the time. I wanted Labradors because I am a, a duck hunter. Apologies to to just your bird hunting audience. Um, but I wanted to hunt birds too. And uh, so he's still a dear friend of mine. I, I looked him up. I went to his house. He had a pair of yellow Labradors and he 
told me about the grouse and woodcock hunting that was just outside of our door, and I didn't believe it, right? I mean, he talked about the numbers of birds that he would flush and encounter and shoot, and I'm like, that can't be true. Um, But it was. He was a funny mentor, and I tease him to this day because he was kind of mean to me, (laughs) right? He he said, well, you know, here's here's what you can do, but I'm not going to show you. Uh, and he's told me now, right, you're one of the few people that kept coming back for more. So you're a, a glutton for punishment. And yeah. uh, now he's without a dog because, of course, life gets in the way. And last year he was my guest many, many times um, shooting birds over my dog. So I guess uh, the wheel is round. huh? So that was 28 years ago, I think, is when I bought my first Labrador. So a big yellow lab, um, big, stubborn, kind of mean, great bird dog, um, but not really easily trainable. And that was five or six ago. So yeah, it's been, they're, they're a gift as well, right? Yeah. Going way back to your first grouse, was that would that was that like southeast Minnesota, kind of that river valley? Where'd you, how'd you get into that bird? Yeah, so that's a that's a good question. So so I hear about these grouse things. So again, pestering my old man all the time. Like we got to go chase these things. Like they're all over the state, right? They're, they're apparently they're they're everywhere, right? <laughs> um, so again, he's a farm boy from south central Minnesota. Doesn't really know what a rough grouse is. Shot pheasants when he was a kid. So we went up to beautiful North Branch, right? So kind okay. of that Lake Malak country. Um, Perhaps and... best known for its uh, outlet mall these days. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm dating myself, Nick. Right? This is like probably 1975. Uh, I'm a little shaver. I've got this 410 bolt action. He's got um, an, an 870 Wingmaster with a 30 inch full choke barrel on it. Right? That's that's yep. the kind of growl. And no dogs. Um, and we would just walk around. And I remember when he shot his first grouse, like he was kind of surprised at what it looked like. Um, so anyways, that was kind of our introduction. And I just couldn't get enough of it. Right. It was awesome. And so, yeah, we would go up uh, MEA weekend. Right. When sure. when yep. the kids had off school and they had MEA weekend all the way back then. Paul, They, they, they did ancient, <laughs> ancient history. Um <laughs> And he would be kind enough to take a couple days off and we would drive up into that country and get a motel room, right? Just fond memories of, of you know, again, you know, it seems like it's about killing birds as, again, many of your guests have talked about, but it's about collecting those memories and hanging out with the old man, just us two in a hotel room. And we would go out and grab a bite and come back and maybe shoot a bird or two. It was, again, without dogs. I look back at it now, and it's kind of a miracle that, that we actually killed anything. Um, right. But uh, it was way cool. So that was, that was that, and that was kind of in that country. That's Man, I knew you and I had some things in common, but it's just it's funny how, these, how the stories can kind of just align themselves. And my, my dad was... He was a transplant from Williston, North Dakota, you know, mm. Northwest North Dakota. And he grew up doing some wing shooting. I don't know how much he really hunted. I mean, I remember him telling me some stories about ducks and not really sharp tails or anything. But when, when we went on our first grouse hunt in Northern Minnesota, it was, it was similar, really. You know, he was, he was 
he was kind of out of his element. We had my uncle along who I believe grew up in Minnesota. And so he kind of, he was sort of guiding us really, but we were doing the same thing, kind of poking around the woods. And my dad had a big 12 gauge Remington 870 Wingmaster still has it. And I, uh, I'll never forget those, those early days. And, and again, I just, for whatever reason, became hooked. And from that point on, it was just as, as much as I could pester him to take me. And when he could find the time he took me and that's, that's how it went. Pretty cool stuff. Yep. So you eventually, we heard the story how you wound up over in Michigan and took off from there. You know that reminds me of another. I was I interviewed somebody early this week. It hasn't been aired yet, but just that whole idea of wanting something bad enough to kind of put yourself out there. You know, you pulled into your your friend's driveway and just kind of said, "Hey, I want to I want to do this. What do I do?" And that that guy kind of took you under his wing. You didn't hand everything to you didn't give everything to you and that was a very similar story that a previous guest explained to me earlier this week and we just kind of kind of resonated with me because i've had a lot of mentors along the way and again there are so many people out there that are willing to share their information but at at a certain point you've got to and it's almost perhaps more from my generation paul because we have so much access to information you at some point you got to step out the door, you know, you got to walk out the front door and give somebody a call or pay somebody a visit. And you'd be surprised at what relationships you can build. Yeah. And it's, I think it's, uh, there's two parts to that. It's important. I kind of look back and what would I have done if somebody would have pulled into my driveway? Sure. Yeah. Probably like, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, (laughs) but this, again, the, the kindest dude on the planet was the duck guy. And again, the bird guy was perhaps less kind, but he also knew that, you know, if this guy's going to keep coming back for more, um, maybe the passion is, uh, is worth a little bit of time and effort. Um, but it also, at some point you do have to go off by yourself and figure it out. I remember again, back to my uncle when I was 16 and could drive, I mean, I, I just loved duck hunting with this guy, right? And it was the stories about him and my grandpa and just, it was the coolest thing in the world. And one day, you know, I'm at, so where are we going this weekend? And he's like, well, I'm going here, but you're going there. And I'm, what are you talking about? <laughs> right? He <laughs> says, well, you've got to figure this out by yourself. You, you've got to go and you got to figure out when you're going to stand up and take them. And you got to put out the decoys. And it annoyed me because I was petrified. We used to hunt down on the Mississippi River below the Twin Cities. And, okay. you know, yeah. some 16-year-old kid, there, there weren't a lack of hunters down there. Sure. Right? Um, yeah. So some 16-year-old kid bumbling his way around in the dark all by himself. It was a little bit intimidating, but it turns out he was right. And um, I learned a lot, made a tremendous number of mistakes, somehow managed not to kill myself um, <laughs> or somebody else. Um, but it was uh, it was a big learning. And back to Michigan here, you know, the, the bird hunter was, you know, this is what you look for, right? This is the kind of habitat, and, and now you go find it. And when you find it, you take me there and I'll tell you how you did. <laughs> right. And, yeah. uh, it's kind of how it worked out. Yeah. It's, you need mentors, but you also need to spend a little bit of time on your own to figure it out. Right. Absolutely. That, that's very interesting. You talk about, you know, you being kind of, kind of maybe intimidated or scared as a 16 year old kid. And, and it makes me think about really the responsibility that your uncle was taking, you know, sending, sending a young man out with a shotgun and we can 
go on and on about gun safety and that sort of thing. But I, similar experience. I mean, I had such a bug about grouse hunting that there were, my parents were driving me up and maybe a friend. It usually wasn't totally by myself, but I'd have a friend. They were driving me up 20, 30 minutes out of Duluth, dropping me off at a gravel road, leaving me there for hours, leaving us there for hours to go hunt with shotguns through the woods. And we'd have a, my friend's parents come pick us up hours later. You know, we didn't do that hundreds of times, but we did that enough to where, boy, that's now having a son of my own. It's that's, that's gotta be, how do you do it, Paul? <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Probably, probably wouldn't do it now. Different time, right? I Again, know. And, yeah. and you don't want to sound like an old guy or anything, but uh, the world's a different place, but it's a simple place too. If, if you kind of can get back to that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I haven't talked about it a lot on this podcast, but I did have, I have nothing against waterfowl hunting. So first <laughs> of all, no apologies necessary. I went through a little bit of a love affair with waterfowl hunting when I was probably in college about that time of my life. And, uh, my dad, fortunately enough, he arranged, uh, trip out to North Dakota in probably six or seven years in a row. We went out there and we're, we're field hunting. We would set up snow goose spreads and we didn't shoot a lot of snow geese. No, but it's a goofy bird, impossible yeah. bird to kill. But anyways, yes. and we learned that <laughs> and I saw some of the great, you know, the great snow geese tornadoes and the crazy flocks and just really real eye-opening experience for somebody that had was fairly limited to kind of a Northwoods outdoors experience up until that point. But we would shoot plenty of ducks. The mallards would dive bomb our geese decoys and geese spreads like nothing. So that was, it was really, really fun. And that kind of lit the fire underneath me to go duck hunting. And we've fiddled it with it around here. But at that time, not having any kind of a dog, nor having really a boat or a canoe, we were just kind of were limited to where we could go and do it. But I, uh, I certainly enjoy a good duck hunt as well. It's funny. My friends tease me, you know, I'll go duck hunting and, and, you know, some ducks will come in and we'll manage to scratch a couple down. And as you're holding in your hands, I'll, I'll, you know, man, there's just nothing like that. And I've said, and then you're in the grouse woods and, you're holding a woodcock in your hand or something, man, that is just the coolest. You say that about every bird, Paul, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and <laughs> you know, the, the, the contrast for waterfowl, I think, is, uh, you know, when you listen to your guests, there's a tradition of grouse hunting, I think, that is focused around pointing dogs and, and the habitat. Certainly there's hills or there's flatland, by the way, we live in the flattest part of the earth, I think, around here. So there's not yeah. a lot of hills, but it, there are some similarities. I, one of the fascinating things about ducks is the uh, kind of just the very different cultures of duck hunting, right? So yeah. there's yeah. Uh, here in Michigan, you know, there's layout boats. In Minnesota, it's it's I, it used to be illegal, right? You had to be affixed to uh, a piece of land or some cattail island or something. And I got here and like a layout boat. What's a layout boat or boat blinds? Boats sitting out in the middle of the water. And I've gotten introduced and 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 have some some friends that are crazy duck hunters. I some might call me one, but I I think I'm more rational. Um, but they have layout rigs, and they're kind enough to take me along. The only problem with the layout boat, by the way, is that it's the, not a dog game. So it pains me to oh. to leave the dog at home because um, it's kind of hard to do that with a dog. But there is nothing like laying on your back about three inches off the water and watching ducks come in over your toes 
and sitting up too late and having them already be past you. And, uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, again, something I hadn't seen when I was growing up, everything was kind of blinds built on the riverbank and stuff like that. So just different cultures, different approaches. And, and that's one thing that waterfowl, right? Waterfowling in Alaska or in Canada is different than in Minnesota is different than in the Gulf coast and different than in Argentina. Right. So it's all, it's kind of unique, right? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's that is a, a, definitely excellent stuff, and and we could we could go on there, but I want to I want to jump into the labs a little bit, and it sounds like so. Remind me if I'm remembering that correctly. The first guy that you talked to, he had a lab. Yeah, so the 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 bird hunting guy had a couple labs, and again, people said you should go talk to this guy, and he he to this day abhors duck hunters, by the way. So that's, uh, if I invite him to duck hunt, he hangs up the phone on me. Um, I've been trying <laughs> so to So he get was an upland hunter. Upland hunter, birds, okay. birds, dry birds only. And, uh, he teases me to this day about, um, the fact that I'm a shameless waterfowler, um, and refuses to go. So again, I, I dance across these two kind of circles of friends, um, sure. that, that look down their nose oddly at e- either side. I've tried to convert some to the other. The, the duck hunters seem like they're more convertible to bird hunting rather than vice versa. So that's sure. uh, maybe a small non-statistical uh, story. But the, uh, yeah, and, and so this guy's a bird hunter, but he doesn't hunt ducks, but has Labradors, um, had nothing against pointing dogs, but just thought that uh, he had kind of grown up with flushing dogs and made that that transition to labs. I was again, wanted to kind of dance and back and forth between both worlds. So I thought it was a, a logical, uh, selection again, nothing against pointing dogs. I just don't know as much about them and hadn't grown up with them as much and wanted to do both. Um, being in the Northern climates, you know, short hairs, obviously the continental breeds can, can waterfowl hunt, but being up in, you know, Lake Huron or the Saginaw Bay when it's uh, when it's 20 degrees, probably not great short hair uh, uh, territory there. So that's nosed around a little bit and, and bought my first lab again in 1993. Again, big yellow dog and um, yeah, took off from there. And we have mentors there as well, right? So um, I took a obedience class at a local community college from a a wonderful dog trainer. Um, she was, uh, again, very traditional six foot lead, sit, stay, come heel. But I learned a tremendous amount of dog behavior from just watching her. Um, she yeah. thought I was terrible, but I would watch, <laughs> watch her and learn a lot. And then, uh, another dear friend of mine, and I still train with her, um, was more of a field trialer. And she had trained with field trials. She was a field judge uh, at some at some points, and uh, she is still my my uh, hunting dog mentor trainer. So we still train together. We were training just the other day, uh, doing some water blinds, which is about all we can do when it's ninety degrees. So yeah. um, kind of one one mentor on the obedience side, and one. Uh, mentor on the uh, on the on the duck side. Um, again, when I listen to your your podcast with uh, with Jerry, yep, right, talking, you know, my my bird hunting buddies have told me that training a bird dog is way easier than training a retriever, and it doesn't seem that way. But I guess I'm just not 
like again exposed enough but again training a retriever to do a blind retrieve is pretty cool and uh yeah you know i always tell people you know, how do you do that you spend a, a lot of time training for like one or two blind retrieves every every fall but uh right anyways it's it's uh it's pretty neat stuff yeah i like it would be no surprise to anybody that listens to this podcast regularly like my experience with flushing dogs is of course limited and i i've had that i guess assumption in my head that it seemed like based on the dogs that I, the pointing dogs that I have, it seems easier to train them or maybe just less involved, you know, cause it's really just putting them out there to try to develop that genetic point. And then everything after that is an obedience thing when you talk steadiness and everything else, but it's pretty basic. Whereas there's really nothing. I don't think there's nothing that I do with my dogs that would compare to training a retriever for blind retrieves or that sort of thing. But that's, but to your point, I mean, the bird hunting part of the Labrador is a lot like what sure. you've talked about and what, Jerry, you just got to get them out there, start walking around the woods again when they're little shavers and they don't, you know, chasing butterflies, chasing leaves, mm-hmm. splashing through puddles. And, you know, all of a sudden they'll bumble their way onto a grouse and like, yep. what in the world was that? But somehow they make that connection, you know, and, and before long, you're uh, they're actually seeking it out. I think, again, back to everything that your guests always say, right? You pick the pedigree, you've got, uh, you've got good lines of a, of a field dog. You know, I think we can start talking about the Labrador and how, how they're actually six or seven breeds. I don't know how many of them there are. That's, I think, one of the kind of problems that they confront right now. Um, but if they are from a field dog uh, line, um, you know, they're going to pick it up pretty fast. And I spend close to no training time on the upland birds, just maybe exercising them and getting them out there when they're young. After that, you know, start trying to shoot birds over them and they pick it up pretty quickly. Yeah. Have you, in, you know, 28 years later, have you done a lot of, have you done any hunting over pointing dogs? I guess is what I'm asking. Or do we just stick to our own little circles? Well, it we, we, we we do stick to our own circles. It's fine. Again, I hunted uh, upland with a small group of, you know, the, the circles are a little bit tight. And I'm counting the flushing dogs last year of my friends and <laughs> no pointing dogs last year. Um, a pretty good friend of mine is a pointing dog guy. So, you know, we, we've, we've hunted together and... Again, I, it's there. It's awesome, right? Walking in yeah. on that point is there's there's nothing like it. And I, the first time I hunted with him, we had gone to Iowa pheasant hunting together, and we were connected with a third friend. And you know, I remember to this day, he was a little miffed that uh, our buddy invited some Labrador guy along because he thought the lab <laughs> was just another thing that walked through the field and bumbled its way onto birds and. I think he was convinced that that's not necessarily true, but watching his dogs work, you know, listen, a, a Labrador in early September in Michigan is not a great dog, right? The uh, So I'm not one of these guys that says my dogs do better than any other dog in any other circumstance, right? There's a reason there's, there's all kinds of breeds. Um, you know, the heat just beats up a, any dog, um, but clearly a Labrador... It's pretty pretty rugged when it's 85 degrees and you're just not going to hunt very long and you know a white dog uh it just shines right and and so retirement is probably not tomorrow but it's 
it's sooner than later, and I've informed my wife that a pointing dog is perhaps a project uh, in retirement for me. So anybody that's, that's interested, yeah, anybody that lives around <laughs> here that's interested in in teaching me how to train a pointing dog, I'll be uh, more than happy to entertain that. That has, uh, a, that has the Project Upland podcast had anything to do with that, Paul? It it might, yeah, yeah. yeah. Shout out <laughs> to Project Upland, so absolutely. And Nick, we'll, we have to fix your problem of not not killing a bird over a flushing dog. So 100%. the invite the invites here, right? It's a it's a short drive across the UP, and and um, you're you're welcome to Midland anytime. I I certainly appreciate that, Paul. And that's you know, again, I think I've been pretty not intentionally, but subconsciously intentionally talked a lot about pointing dogs on this. I think I've been open enough to, to let people know that I just haven't hunted over flushing dogs. Not that I don't want to, but I, the opportunity hasn't come, but I really, I really want to. And I, and it's weird. You get into some of these conversations and it's, you know, the, the world of, I think hunting culture is just full of these kinds of things where you get, you know, it's kind of like breed bashing, but it's like, there's a difference between having fun with it, but then also like thinking, that way when my sort of default mentality would be like, there's so many people talking dogs, you know, if there's so many good breeders out there doing great things, like it would be foolish to believe that there aren't great dogs in all kinds of breeds that in flushers, pointers, retreat, all that stuff. It's just, that's just not the way that I think about things. Yeah. A couple, you know, I, I, some folks that don't have a lot of flushing dog time, you know, the the first question they always ask me is like, well, you, you're just not going to know. How do you know? Right. The, and I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. and I've gotten to the point where pretty confidently call either a grouse or a woodcock. Right. Depending upon how the dog is behaving and usually give guys, you know, when I say heads up right? That you need to be watching the dog and you need to be ready because it's going to happen. And, um, you know, usually they're, they're, you know, especially newer, newer hunters, they're going to doubt me a little bit there. And, and, uh, one of my favorite stories, I take a guy who, uh, he was a pointing dog guy and he's like, how do you know? I said, you're going to know, right? Just, just, and I said, but be ready, right? When I tell you heads up and be ready, I want you to yeah. be ready. And so we get into the cover and we're not 15 yards in and the tail starts to go and I, all right, heads up here and bird up, you know, and, and the dog had flushed a bird and I right over his head and I'm waiting, 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 waiting and it flies away. And I walk up to him. I said, so what, what, what happened? He said, well, I, I, I wasn't ready. And I said, well, <laughs> didn't believe what, you. What part of be ready? <laughs> didn't, didn't you, didn't you understand anyway? So it gets, it, it's really obvious. Right. And again, the folks that are out there that have, hunted over flushing dogs, right? That tail starts to go and, yeah. and you know, it's the game is on, right? Yep. That's cool. Even, even I have seen enough with dogs and I mean, they, they're always telling you something through their body language and their behavior. They're always telling you something. Tell me, talk to me a little bit about, I, you've struck my curiosity there about calling grouse or woodcock. What things are you seeing? What, what things have you observed and that are tipping you off a little bit? I'm sure that you probably do the same thing. Um, so you and I talked when we when we chatted briefly in the intro. Um, yep. Again, the country that I'm in, the grouse see a lot of hunters, especially later in the year after they've been chased around a little bit. Um, it's it's just a tough bird, right? He's 100% devoted to not getting killed, and 
spends all his time, maybe five minutes a day eating in the morning and eating in the afternoon, but the rest of the time is is trying to stay alive. And so they are a running bird. Again, I, I just, uh, they are a running fool. So obviously a woodcock's kind of methodology is to let the predator walk past, right? I'm going to sit real still. So the dog will get on that scent and just the pace that which they work after your dog has had a couple years of experience. So now I'm gearing down, I'm crouched low, my, you know, the tail is whirring, but the dog is, is, you know, you can tell his kind of field of interest is really tight and, you know, that just looks like a woodcock, right? Okay. Occasionally you're wrong, but that bird is right here. That dog is acting like that bird is right here. And that bird is right here. Grouse, right? After about a second of that, uh uh-oh, right? We're, we're moving and we're moving fast and the dog is moving fast. The bird is moving fast. Hunter needs to move fast as well. Um, you know, I'm not, not advocating running and, and, and rarely run, but you know, your job, again, one of my phrases, when I tell people don't follow the dog, right? Try to cut them off, try to flank, flank, flank. That's my word. Sure. Flank, 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 flank. Again, I know, you know, again, you'll have the same approach on a dog that's moving, a pointing dog that's moving on a bird. So yeah. the point is to try to cut that bird off. But again, you can tell the way that dog's kind of area of focus is now just bigger, um, that that's probably a roughie and we're all moving. Sometimes it gets insane. Again, back to the obedience, you know, I will just sit the dog at some point. You know, we've been on that bird for, you know, how long, you know, sit. I'll sit the dog, try to move up ahead. Usually it doesn't work because the, the, the grouse has now triangulated everything and yep. has figured out where it's going to fly to uh, to put several trees between me and, and him. Um, but at least some sort of order is uh, is happening during that. And I, I, a couple of years ago, I had a dog kind of sit down. I sat him down. We were on a grouse for a long time. And... He's given me that look as I'm moving up behind him, like, you know, dad, that bird is right here. What are, what are we doing? And I'm trying to move up into position. And I, and I said something to him and he thought I said, okay, which is my release. And I did not say, okay, I honestly think it was an honest mistake on his part. And he moved in and it was a grouse right there, five feet in front of him. Yep. You know, really nice control on his part. He did everything right, but I wasn't ready because I really didn't say okay, and uh, and off the bird went. But that's pretty cool when you can you can tighten up the dog like that, and sometimes get yourself into a nice position to try to get at least a reasonable shot. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, boy. There's a lot of things I pull. I jotted down a couple notes there because I want to pull on a few of those, tug on a few of those strings, I guess, but. That, Fritz and Rick, I was interviewing those guys earlier and they talked about that too and having that much control on their flushing dogs. And you know, when you get to that point, you almost have you almost have kind of the best of both worlds in the sense that you'll you'll oftentimes hear pointing dog folks, myself included, I've I've said this, where sometimes your dog is locked up on point. I know there's a bird in there, I know where the bird is, and I'm in a good spot to shoot, but I don't I have not trained my dog to release and go flush that bird, right? That's not something that I have decided that I even want to dabble with at this point. But for you, you can do that, and then you can be sure you're ready. I mean, that's that's a 
boy, that's a great way to effective way to get a shot on a bird. Dog, you know, the dog flushing dog wants to flush the bird, right? He wants yeah. to get his teeth on that bird. That's what's what's driving him. And again, with with woodcock, I mean, again, woodcock's never no bird is easy, right? But certainly, yep. you can position yourself better. You have a little bit more time. That's mm-hmm. I think. Again, if it was all about killing birds, I I think two two guys and one flushing dog is it's hard to really be more effective than that because the bird is confused by not just the bell but trying to keep track of two other pieces of noise because I actually think that they kind of try to keep track of that. At least a grouse does. Um, maybe yep. I'm giving them too much credit, but it sure seems like they deserve it. Um, They can hear, yeah. And, you know, one piece of noise beside the bell they can kind of keep track of. But again, back to my my old mentor, you know, we read each other and we see which way the dog is going between us. And if we are properly flanking, you know, the other guy gets a lot of that 15-yard right across your face look because between the dog and the other guy, they've put pressure on that bird to fly across the gun of the other side. And it's a, it's a pretty, you know, it, it can be pretty deadly. Grouse usually wins, right? They always kind of win, but uh, two guys and a flushing dog is a pretty effective way to, to pickle them. Yeah, without a doubt, the multi-shooter aspect in the grouse woods is a huge advantage for, for one of those shooters, yep. at least. But yep. that's, again, it all comes back to, how many sides and different forces of pressure can you put on that bird to force it into flying down the wrong route or just basically going the wrong place at the wrong time? That is, uh, that is for sure. I'm curious if you, when you, cause I do this too, and I'm always trying to, I don't have a, I don't have a, or I guess I don't think that I read my dog in the sense that some pointy dog folks you'll hear them say you know if the head's low it's a woodcock if the head's up it's a grouse and there may be some truth to that but i'm always trying to i just can't help it when i'm walking in on a flush i'm thinking is this a grouse or a woodcock that's just my mind is racing in that moment i I should probably just turn that thing off and just (laughs) relax my gaze and just walk in there but it's hard to do so i walk in there and i make my big circle first hoping that we've got a grouse pinned in there between us i'm trying to apply a pressure from another side if it's just me and the dog and i'm hoping it's a grouse there's there's this moment that i think a lot of people will understand there's a moment where a grouse is likely to flush if you get beyond that moment where the grouse doesn't flush i've made my move i've got two sides of pressure on where i think the bird is going to be at that point i'm going to move in towards my dog and the closer and closer i get to a dog the more my brain wants to predict the outcome that's about to happen so it's saying woodcock 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 with each step as i get closer to the dog i'm thinking woodcock and sure enough you know it'll happen a handful of times a season i'll get right on top of the dog and there's a grouse under his nose and i can recall one one moment last year where that same exact thing happened i got to the point where i was so close to the dog i thought there's no way a rough grouse is going to put up with this and sure enough it was a grouse and sure enough i missed it (laughs) The, yeah, I, it's the charm of it, right? And, and yes. I, you know, so duck hunting, if you're out on the Saginaw Bay, we get different species. And the different species behave differently, right? A redhead's going to behave differently than a mallard. But, you know, you're you're out there. You've got a good view. Here come some ducks. You can kind of tell what they are when they're 200 yards out there. And, I mean, it's thrilling, right? I'm not discounting yep. that. but. Grouse woodcock hunting in the northern woods where you've got two birds that are so 
different. And yep. for the dogs to be able to handle both of those, again, some of my friends look down their nose at Woodcock. I, I just can't look down my nose at them. I think they're just the neatest, coolest bird on the planet. Um, uh, some people don't like them on the table. I, I've developed a taste for them. I, I actually think they're pretty delicious. Um, I agree. And just for those two kinds of behaviors to be right there at the same place and for that kind of mystery to be happening every time, um, it's pretty, it's just the coolest thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, a couple more questions here. Now, I, I was envisioning this as you were talking about it, just knowing that you must see the way that your dogs are working. You must see birds running on the ground. And I'm, I'm, I'm juxtaposing that versus my pointing dog who hits scent and stops. And then it's kind of up to me. Again, I'm continually analyzing as I move in. It's kind of up to me to put on, like put together what's going on. But as a flushing dog working a bird, you must see a little bit more of that mystery unfold at times. Do you see a lot of grouse and or woodcock running up ahead of your dogs? Never. Like Really? Yeah, never. Okay. I, and, you know, obviously that's a bit of an exaggeration. Sure, To sure. The, the two guys, again, like, you know, my buddies will say, that, you know, see a grouse running up ahead. I'm usually so focused on the dog that I'm kind of not watching too much occasionally you pick up a little bit of movement ahead never see a woodcock i don't think that i can recall ever seeing a woodcock on the ground ahead of him but by yeah. the time like if it's that tight you know you'll it's it's appearing now as it as it hits the air and i've had yeah. you know again when the dog all of a sudden makes a loop and a grouse makes a mistake i last year again i i could walk you to the spot dog suddenly makes a turn at me and I'm like, Oh, what's going on here? And he's got that look on his face like that, that this bird is, <laughs> is right here. And I mean, five yards in front of me, this grouse takes off the ground and like, <laughs> how in the world did I not see that bird? Um, yeah. but I'm watching the dog and, you know, occasionally I'll be on a two track where the dog again, will make a loop and, and start coming my way. And I can tell he's on a bird and then you see the movement, but boy, over 28 years, I can probably count on, on, you know, my two, my two hands, the times I've seen a bird on the ground. Um, and that's, you know, thousands and thousands of flushes. So I don't, it's either I'm, you know, my eyes are bad and you can probably tell by the thickness of my glasses. That's probably true. And guys that see me shoot <laughs> will probably attest to the same, but, um, uh, maybe I'm just looking in the wrong place. Well, that's funny because, you know, a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot of people, but I have read and you'll see people talking about how to be a better wing shot in the woods. They will talk about, forget about the ground, you know, watch the dog. Of course, learn what you can from the dog, but forget about trying to spot the grouse on the ground. Just keep your eyes up on the horizon and that'll make you a better shot. Well, I can't, it's too ingrained in me because I've talked about this for, for a long time. I hunted without a dog and I, one of my main tactics was scanning the ground, mm. trying to spot rough grouse because I needed every advantage I could get. Right. So I was walking logging trails and walking really slow and I think I got fairly good at spotting grouse on the ground. And now today I can't help it. So I'm always looking and I, I see quite a few birds on the ground. And I don't know if that's just because my dogs are pointing them. And I, you know, I of course have a heads up that it's going to happen. But why I was asking you that is because I have this thing about, 
what I think would be really fun to experience with flushing dogs in that when a pointing dog is there, he's applying, that dog's applying pressure from one side. Like we talked about, I'm doing my best that I can to apply pressure from another side because that's going to increase my odds of success with a flushing dog. I always think that that dog is kind of applying pressure at will in, you know, within under your control, obviously. And I always think you're going to get some different kind of shot opportunities, having these birds come at you and fly at you, which is what you just described. So that's, I think that would be one of the most kind of fun things for me to experience about hunting over flushing dogs. It's the, the looks are different, you know, well, and, and I'm, it, that's the again another cool part about bird hunting, right? No matter how many different birds you've shot at or shot, you know, successfully, every one of them is a little bit different. And yeah. again, if you got two guys, you kind of tend to get different looks. You're hunting by yourself, you'll tend to get different looks. Again, when I first started, I was just always on that dog's heels, and have learned over time that if dog is moving that way, I'm gonna move right. He's going at two o'clock. I'm gonna move at ten o'clock. And, you know, try to flank and I'll hopefully get that kind of better angle and a better look. And again, like you say, apply some different sort of pressure, make that bird do something that, uh, that he doesn't necessarily want to do. Yeah. We're both, we're both really trying to do the same thing. And that's, you know, that's a, that's the effective way to do it is pressure that bird from multiple sides. If you can, it just, this it plays out just a little bit differently. I have found, I mean, you made the point about looking down when I, I, again, not a ton of experience shooting birds over pointing dogs, but I find myself trying to look for that bird. And, you know, again, it's a point and uh, duh, there's a bird there, but just absolutely being frazzled by, by the flush where with a flushing dog, again, you would, I I almost always know when it's going to happen. And, you know, again, my, my gun is up. I'm looking up over the, the head of that dog. I'm, I'm, you know, my eyes are up. I'm not trying to see the bird. And for whatever reason, the chaos of that is much less chaotic to me than, than walking in on a point. I, I get frazzled every time. It's odd, right? It's not supposed to be that way, I don't think. <laughs> well, I can, I can certainly understand, like, where you're coming from with that. Because in, in the perfect pointing dog scenario there there's a there's a distinct calm before the storm right my dog is a statue on point and i'm walking in waiting for a moment that i don't know when it's going to happen and you know it's not entirely different with a flushing dog but based on what you're telling me and what i can picture is that you have this kind of it's more of an arc where the dog the dog's interest is building and you're all working up to this point where you're kind of riding that ramp up. Whereas versus going from zero to 60 in a heartbeat. Yeah. There's, there's, there's no calm, right? It, it builds and then it builds faster and then it builds faster and everybody's getting excited at the same time, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, man, I was going to ask you something, but I forgot. Maybe it'll come back to me, but outside of the grouse woods, what other upland pursuits do you love to do with your labs, if anything? Yeah, so that's well, like all of us. If it was if it was here, we'd we'd do it. I um I've been to to Kansas um shooting quail and again back to my buddies, right? There's there's nothing like a flushing dog when he gets a scent of a covey of quail and and again I realize that's uh, sacrilege to, to some, but um 
you know, they they can be effective in that country if the weather's not too brutal. And it's just awesome, right? And I, I remember one of my labs, uh, you know, kind of didn't know what he was doing. It was, he was a, he was a pup and it was our first time down there and was so excited about whatever he was smelling. And he just stopped, right? He froze like, and I'm like, what in the world is he doing? And I took a step towards him and he was literally standing in the middle of a covey of quail, right? I think (laughs) his nostrils and everything were so overcome that he really didn't know what was happening. But, um, so that was cool. I've, I've been to Iowa pheasant hunting, um, Several times, uh, shot pheasants in Kansas, uh, quail in Nebraska, you know, sharp tails on the prairie um, uh, a little bit. That's maybe a plan for this fall. I think I told you I, I, my trips are just to extend my hunting season. Obviously, Michigan in, in October is the perfect place to be. Um, duck hunting in Michigan in that uh, during the rifle deer season is a, is a great thing, but uh, – for the last 25 years, I've started my uh, hunting season in early September in Saskatchewan, and thanks to uh, to the coronavirus, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So I'm heartbroken, right? Again, it's uh, it's yeah. friends and country and kind of a tradition that uh, you know. There's three of us that go up there, and of course, the and that's dog- a mixed bag hunt, right? It's uh, no, it's uh, it's. It's only waterfowl. It's uh, okay. it's again. It's pretty rough on the dogs, just because it's it's typically pretty warm, right? And yep. we've talked about it, but again, after you've you know you're going to hunt a couple times a day, geese in the morning and ducks in the afternoon, and okay. if it's eighty, right, hunting again Labradors on top of that after they've uh, after they've fetched up a bunch of birds is pretty hard on them. Um, but I'm going to miss that just horribly. It's uh, it's just so sad. And, and the dogs come back out of that with, you know, typically a season's worth of work after a week up there. It's, uh, sure. it's yeah. pretty spectacular. And over the years, I mean, again, all, all of your guests talk about it. You go through a transition of, of really wanting to shoot a lot of birds to now it's just the country and it's the people and, you know, watching a bunch of ducks just pile into a place and, 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 you know, collecting a few of them and, and, and just watching is so cool. So I'm trying to think of what I'm going to do in early September and trying to make some phone calls out to Montana to see if I could go out there again. Everybody warns me that it'll be hot and I know that, but, um, it'll be something to do instead of going to Canada. So that's, uh, that's something I might give a try to. Yeah. I think you'd be, you would, uh, you know, you've been on the prairie, obviously. I think you would, you would find enjoyment of it. And it's, it's kind of about expectation, just knowing that, versus you know whether you go before rough grouse season opens up in michigan you know you're going to be in for some hot weather yep. and you can, you can always hunt at sunrise and some days you're only going to hunt at sunrise but if you know that going into it hey it's better than better than not being on the prairie <laughs> better than working exactly so that's uh <laughs> yeah. right now that's the plan we'll see uh we'll see if we can't put something together again if nothing else i might just drive out there by myself and do some exploring and and uh come back and and then we'll we'll hit them here in michigan on the 15th so I, that was gonna be my next question i was gonna are you I was gonna ask if you're the kind of grouse hunter that you're out there on september 15th no questions asked absolutely right All so right. why not and again sometimes it's a 45 minute hunt right uh yep. you know it's it's 
you know, people say, well, you can't see and well, you never can see. Right. I, I don't right. I don't care if it's uh, if it's late October and all the leaves are down. Grouse still has an uncanny way of finding the one twig that's out there mm-hmm. and putting it in between you and him. So it's you know, it's a great walk. The dogs um, can ease their way into it. Right. If they run hard for 45 minutes or we I said it's flat. Um, but you know, if you stay close to water, there's lots of creeks around and little berms and, and, uh, we are historically at high water here as well. So the woods will be wet. If you can keep them wet, they can kind of keep going without overheating and, and, uh, you know, yeah, absolutely. September 15th, if I'm in town, I'm going for sure. Well, it would be foolish for me to make the assumption that I will never have a different frame of mind than I do today because I know that, you know, people grow and change over time. But it, I'll, I'll let you be my, my motivation and, and kind of my idol in that regard, Paul, because I, I don't see how just being as into this as I am, I don't, you know, I want to be out there bad on opening day. And again, managing expectations, knowing what I'm going to be in for. But I think part of the love and the joy that we have for those late October, early November days is only, it's only deepened by the fact that you were out there on September 15th and you can see that transition in the grouse woods. And and that's it, right? It's, it's so, you don't even know you're in the same place, right? You right. go in there and I mean, it's hot and the woods are your field of view, right? It's, it's five yards, right? I, people, you know, talk about, you know, I, again, take new people along. Well, you know, how far can you shoot? I said, if you can see it, it's in range. Don't worry about it. Right. I mean, you don't yeah. need to, you yeah. don't need to worry about extending the range of your shotgun here. You're going to, if you kill a bird, it's going to be at 10 paces. And, you know, then you watch those woods roll over, the ferns will die. And, you know, usually it happens pretty fast, right? The it, You'll get yeah. some frost and then you get a rain and, you know, again, back to the birds, those first few days after their world kind of gets rocked, right? Their canopy is gone. The ferns are down. They can't run as easily as they can. And, you know, after a few days of that, they're pretty smart again, right? Now they've figured out a whole new way of escaping and and uh, avoiding uh, getting, getting got. But uh, yeah. seeing, yeah, seeing the woods change from summer which is basically what september 15th is to and you know i I typically hunt grouse on january 1 in michigan we're allowed to hunt on new year's day and even if the weather's miserable i usually go just to say that i went on the last day and uh it's typically not very pleasant sometimes too snowy but you know what the boys and i got out and we did a little bit of running and yeah and then we wait until next year. You must have some memories, recollections of some early season chaotic brood breakups with those dogs of yours. Yeah, and, and I had one last year. Uh, so, again, <laughs> I, I had a, 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 a pup who was just a baby. We took him to Saskatchewan at, uh, boy, he was eight months old, you know, and went up there not knowing really much about it and came back kind of a duck dog. Turned out to be a fine bird dog, right? Didn't do a whole lot of duck hunting here in the state. I I hunted my older dog on ducks. But my older dog got into a brood of grouse. Again, can't see your hand in front of your face. And 
a bird is flying and a bird is flying and a bird is flying and he's <laughs> getting angrier and angrier because I can't see anything and it was mad chaos. Um, yeah. You know, and then, you know, the only bird you end up seeing hops up into a twig and is looking yep. at you from five <laughs> feet away. And, you know, I, I'm like most of your listeners, not going to shoot that bird. Um, trying to make him fly again. We all have funny stories about that. Throwing water yeah. bottles at birds and having them look at you, and then of course at the least opportune time, off he flies and he gets to live yeah. another day. But uh, that's part of the fun of it too. Yeah, that that brings to mind a funny story. I I was hunting last year with my uh, buddy Scott. He's kind of been uh, I'd call him my grouse hunting and wing shooting mentor. I've, I've really learned a lot from him over the last handful of years. But last year I learned something that only, uh, only somebody that's been doing it as long as he have would be clever enough to know. And that is we had a grouse go up into a tree on us and we both were there, you know, kind of had the, this was later season. So it wasn't like we couldn't see or anything. So there's this grouse up in the tree. Both know where he's at. Neither of us are going to shoot this thing off the limb. And I'm in a position where I'm kind of like, okay, Scott, you know, you go get him. Cause I think he already had a bird in the bag. So I was trying to make him do a little bit of work. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm watching the bird. I'm waiting for it to fly. And I didn't see this happen, but Scott goes up to the tree and you can only do this if the tree is skinny enough where it'll actually work. If it's too big of a tree, it won't work. But he goes up to the tree. He's got his gun ready and he shoves his, backside into the tree to send a shockwave up the tree the grouse takes off it gets up i raise my gun shoot bird comes down i turn over to scott with a smile on my face and scott goes did you shoot <laughs> and i said i sure did and and he goes he goes i waited for you to shoot but i shot too ah. so we uh we both got that bird it wasn't uh it wasn't destroyed or anything so it was good i tell you what that you know again i you know people will ask me again you know do you do you approve of that? And I'm like, no, I, d I don't approve of it. And, 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 you know, come on. Well, why not? Because I'm just not that hungry. Right. We, yeah. we that's what Kroger's for. Um, <laughs> but that shot is the toughest shot in the grouse woods, right? Once, once tough. they decide to fly, you will miss over and above uh, yep. and behind almost every time. And the ones that I have managed to scratch down, Usually it's it's the tail feathers and the back legs that I've managed to put a few pellets in, and then the dog gets to go do his work. But uh, that is yep. it's a dastardly move on their part, and uh, <laughs> it seems like it'll be so easy. Um, but yeah, tricky, very tricky in a in a seemingly dumb way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I have to ask you this because this is something that I was like, Fritz and Rick kind of we dove deep on it earlier today but talking about cover i just i want to i want to get your what do you look for in grouse cover and i'm just just always of course curious to talk to other grouse hunters about that but talk to me about some of the things that you look for in a grouse cover yeah you know that of course it changes we talked about the change of the seasons um yeah uh, you know what i see early in the season you know that absolutely classic 10 year old eight year old clear cut and ferns, right? The the understory mm -hmm. of that. So you've kind of got this dual understory of, you know, the slash, which is, you know, 10, 15 feet off the ground. Ferns are two, three feet off the ground. Both kinds of birds, right? That seems like a great place for mama grouse to raise her babies. So, you know, broods are in there. Um, our local woodcock, and again, we raise a tremendous amount of woodcock in this country. So, 
um, you know, they have that double layer of protection. Um, yep. Once the ferns are down, you know, that type of cover seems a little bit trickier. The grouse will, the grouse will kind of gravitate towards the alleys and the edges and, and, and they're looking for something different. You know, the, the local woodcock will move to kind of a second set of understory like dogwood bushes and, and stuff like that. Um, of course, dogwood in, you know, mid-October, late-October, if it holds its fruit, it's kind of the best cover for, again, both, right? It, it holds, sure. you know, kind of a ceiling for woodcock from, from aerial predation and, you know, grouse in this country. Um, that's the, it's a, just the perfect food for them, right? And yeah. if you can find you know, south facing layers of dogwood, um, on a warm afternoon in October where they're kind of actively feeding and they're worried about calories at night. That is magic. Right. Um, and then, yeah, then it, then it flips over into, into November, you know, those birds have been chased around a little bit. It just like where you can't walk and move, that's yeah. kind of where they're going. Right. So, uh, and then December's just a crapshoot, right? Again, uh, thicker swales, grass, swamps, stuff like that, I think, is typically where we start to look um, after the snow is down. Yeah, yeah, wherever the, wherever the cover is. Yep. Now, you also mentioned to me that you, and this is, again, something that I'm interested in, but you... You keep logs of your grouse hunting, is that correct? I do. I'm 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 a scientist by training and uh, kind of a data freak. So why not why not kind of combine uh, two passions? So I've yeah I've kept goofy logs. Maybe it's just be, I'm not sure how good the data is. Right? I, I'd like to think yeah. that it's it's good. Obviously, it's not statistical, but um, yeah. you know I'll clip a feather off, and so they you know they've it's it's memories. It's like pictures, but I also kind of use it, you know, if I hunt the same number of days every year and look at, look at the birds that I've flushed. So I keep track of flushes. I keep track of hours. I'm not sure what it tells me, but it's kind of fun just to relive the hunt at the end of the day and make some notes, gripe about the dogs, complain about my shooting yep. and maybe have uh, kind of one perfect moment that I can capture and write down in there a little bit. It's uh, it's interesting when you look at the you know the ten year cycle, the logs kind of support that. Again, when I came here and started chasing them in ninety four, ninety three, everybody said it was down cycle. I was just learning it with a new dog. You know, I guess that would be true. Ninety nine was supposed to be the peak of the cycle, and it was. I mean, it was uh, just kind of outrageous, the number of birds that we had. And I still remember I had a, a brand new lab. I had my first dog was middle of his prime then and uh, had a pup. And between those two dogs, I mean, boy, they, they fetched a pile of birds that year. And that was still kind of important to me, I guess, back then. Just outrageous. Now, 2009, yeah. if I looked at the data, it it wasn't it wasn't as great as that. Now, again, who knows, you know, there's local factors as well, right? Did we have, mm -hmm. you know, real cold spring? I mean, that matters. Last year we had kind of a cold, miserable spring, kind of had a cold, miserable spring this year too. So I don't really know what it's going to look like, but you know, that, that matters too. Um, 
so yeah, I've, I've, I'm not sure why I keep track, but I do just because it's kind of fun and I've got all these books sitting on my shelf that I'll dig one out and just read it sometime and it's kind of yep. neat. But yeah, I keep a spreadsheet even. I'm like, I'm goof. I'm a goofball. Well, you and me both, Paul, because I, I do know I've talked about this with people before and I know that a lot of folks are really hot or cold on it. They're either into it or they want nothing to do with it, which I totally understand. But for me and apparently you, that is something for me, I, I find it interesting and I have a spreadsheet. That's where I do the bulk of my stuff and I track flushes, miles, walked hours, a lot of the same things. Probably. I know some of the things that I appreciate about it are now that I've really gotten specific about tracking, you know, the day and the hunt and I have GPS tracks that are stored based on my Garmin watch and everything like that. I can, without writing anything down that day, which I'd love to be able to, at the end of every day, journal down, write down some notes, but I don't do that. But I can go back and based on the numbers and the data and the maps, I can really kind of put myself in that place and that time. And it, it just adds more context to the memories, I think. And one of the reasons that I do it, I'd be curious if you share it, is mainly because I appreciate I appreciate the actual information, actual data that the numbers give me. So when I'm recalling things 20, 20 years down the road from now, Paul, I, I will actually be able to point to specific days and times and know how many birds I flush and not think, boy, those were, I used to flush all kinds of grouse and now I don't. And that might very well be the case, but the numbers are going to tell me that. No, that's true. And, and, you know, the one thing I kind of, you know, I, I look at last year more than I look at 20 years ago and I kind of put together, it's funny, my, my kid found a piece of paper in my truck the other day. He says, what's this? I said, well, that's, that's very precious. That's the, uh, that's last year's schedule. Um, and you know, what it is, is kind of this map of all these covers and kind of the order by which I want to go through them based on what I looked at last year and kind of seeing, okay, this was a pretty good cover in this particular weather with this particular food and, and this maybe not so much, right. And covers, as you know, they live and they die They're they they get old, they wash yeah. out. What do the colors mean? Well, green is really good. Yellow is okay. And Red is maybe it's past its prime, although it's maybe worth one last visit. Maybe it's just a walk down memory lane. So, you know, I I think it it maybe gets me in good places um, at the right time. It's probably just random, and I'm probably not as good as I think I am. But as you say, I I can go back to 1999 and point to it and say, yeah, that's that's no bull. That was a that was an unbelievably spectacular year. Right. Uh, and here here are the numbers. And, you know, my first dog, uh, you know, I kept track of the number of flushes that he had over a lifetime and you add them all up. And it's like, oh, my God, no wonder he turned out pretty good. Right. Because yeah. he had a pile of bird contacts. Right. Yeah, that's cool. I, I would be curious to hear what you would have to say regarding the storyline of your experience in the Grouse Woods from 2017 through last year. So I'll add a little bit of a preface there in that the story that I have in my head is that 2017 was the year where, you know, the States were still conducting drumming counts and I know Michigan doesn't do them anymore. I don't know if they were in 17, but the drumming counts were really high in the spring of 2017. The fall of 2017 was a year that a lot of people went into the woods and were, what they found was well below the expectations that had been 
set by whatever factors. And that was when a lot of people started talking about West Nile virus. Then 2018 happened. For me, 2018 was a better year. Last year, 2019, was a significantly better year than 18 and 17. And I'm curious what the story has been in your grouse woods the last couple of years. I was with you right up until last year. Um, okay. So 17, so the the woodcock hunting here is super consistent. Again, okay. if I, so which which measure do you want to use? Flushes per hour. And I do yeah, keep track of, keep track of both or the number of birds that I actually harvest. Yep. You know, the, the deviation from the mean, if you will. Again, I don't want to geek out too much, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, woodcock is pretty super consistent over the 20, 26 years, you know, a couple anomalies where it was probably super, super dry all summer. But, you know, in 17, I, I, you know, grouse were just hard to come by for me. Yep. 18 was, and again, I hunt about the same number of days every year, right? It's somewhere between 30 and 40 days. Um, okay. yep. And 18 was significantly better from a harvest and from a flushes per hour and from an encounters. And last year, you know, I, again, around here, it seemed, I think I kind of know what I'm doing. It was, it was rough. Uh, again, decent, absolutely decent spot on number of woodcock, just some spectacular days, um, uh, with them, but grouse, uh, you know, there would be some Again, uh, my my mentor that I have referred to, we spent all day, right? We had both my dogs. We'd, we'd pick one up. We'd drop one down. And I think we hunted close to six hours. And we we killed one bird, and I think we flushed two. And we were in pretty uh, good wow. country. And, yeah. you know, again, I, it, it's not – we had a great day. We had a great walk. The dogs had a blast. Um, yep. But that's – you know, I, you'd, you'd like to see a little bit more activity there. So, so your yeah, were your your flushes per hour were lower in nineteen than they were in eighteen? Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Uh, on on grouse for sure. I I yep. I have a question for you. I you know yeah. the data has come out on West Nile. I think the, you know Minnesota and Wisconsin did a pretty significant study, and I saw their conclusion was that it's really not super prevalent. I think if I had recalled that that study one of the things that uh that i've seen in the last couple of years and it's kind of gross is uh wood ticks all over grouse have oh, really? have you ever harvested a grouse that's full of wood ticks i can't say that i haven't heard that before but i guess i've never looked close enough at a grouse to see one i've never felt you know like a big engor- engulf engorged tick on a grouse i it hasn't crossed my mind or i haven't seen it i guess you know now the word on the street is that michigan is super bad on wood ticks this year and i haven't i began it's been so hot i've been focusing on water work with the dogs haven't really run them at all in the woods yet but people tell me that there are and we've i've seen it in the last couple years wood ticks just like really bad on the dogs all the time in the fall But over the last couple of years, again, you'll shoot a grouse and it'll be covered with wood ticks. And it's pretty disgusting and kind of, again, kind of gross. And I don't remember seeing that years ago. Now, again, if that's if that affects their mortality, I can't remember seeing any kind of data or studies about that. Um, But, you know, tick is a disease carrying 
critter, right? So Yeah. Well, and the one thing I know about ticks is that one way to really wipe them out is a fire. And you know as well as I know that we don't really allow fires to burn across these landscapes the way that they once did. Yep. And and hard winters, and we've had a couple, you know, they, mm-hmm. they seem long and they seem kind of miserable when you're in them. But here in Michigan, you know, it was super cold early last year, froze us out of some duck hunting, but uh, then it warmed up and we didn't really have very cold winter. So uh, yeah. not not very rough on some of that. Yeah, the one thing I will mention on the West Nile stuff, which is ongoing, the testing and everything, and you're right, the results did come out last year and they were I'm not gonna try to remember the percentages that were given out, but they they listed the percentage of grouse that had West Nile virus antibodies mm. and then they also talked about the grouse that had West Nile in the heart, which would mean they were currently infected. The antibodies like in the blood or wherever it was could suggest that a grouse could get West Nile virus and recover. So that was that was good news. The the ones in the ones that actually had active infections in the heart was a pretty low number. It was not significant at all really based on my memory, but the one thing to that I always kind of if I get into conversation with people like this or about this, I always throw in that most of the samples that were collected to test these West Nile these birds for West Nile virus are collected in the fall by hunters, mm. which in itself, you'll probably understand this better than me because you're a scientist, but that you're looking at a, at a population that's already been limited because that doesn't take into account any and or all birds that could have already been killed by West Nile virus before the season starts. Right. And I, I, yeah, again, I know um, two years ago, the mosquitoes here, and again, it's all weather dependent, but you yep. literally could not spend any time outside your truck. Um, yep. I, I remember getting back from a, a hunt early in the year and literally like the dog is gray, right? The dog is black naturally, yeah. but he is yep. literally gray. I mean, just covered with mosquitoes. And I mean, I, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't hardly stand it. It was just outrageous. So that probably can't help, right? Uh, when you've yeah. got that kind of vector flying around everywhere just thick right exactly yeah yep yeah i mean there's of course a lot we don't know about west nile virus i think i mean really one of the things that we can take away right now is we know that rough grouse can get it they can be affected by it and that's a reality that was not always the case for rough grouse so do you know anything about about that and woodcock because i haven't seen that and i no, i don't I, I know people have asked that question before i think in in conversations that i was listening to or paying attention to but i i don't i haven't heard much about it and i just i don't know what they're seeing okay as far as that goes at the moment okay yeah uh, well, that's I love it. I mean, that's a uh, couple of grouse geeks like you and I. We could we could talk about that stuff for quite a while. But that's for me. It's part of the fun. For you, it's part of the fun. It's not for everybody, but I it it's uh, it's another expression of this stuff that we get so carried away with. Well, and I the the log books, right? I tell my son who's who's not much of a bird hunter, right? I said, you know, when I die, you can you can have these and you can maybe look <laughs> at them and but right before you throw them away, think uh, think kindly of, <laughs> of your dad and he rolls yeah. his eyes at me. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's again, what what are we actually after, right? I think we're just after collecting those memories, and it's it's one yeah. way to kind of keep them, like you say. Uh, Try not to lie to yourself, right? When you uh, when you look back, right? Yeah. Well, at least uh, at least my son won't have to go through the trouble of throwing away all these podcasts, but he can go listen to them if he wants to. <laughs> Fair enough. 
<laughs> oh shoot, Paul, this, this was this was really fun. I'm I am very happy that you reached out to me. I'm I'm glad you did. This was a great conversation. I had a had a great time learning more about your your hunting and your dogs and making a connection with you. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time, man. Super cool. And again, props to you for taking the bait. And I sin- sincerely <laughs> mean it. I would love to to have you over and I can show you what it means to call a woodcock or a grouse and uh, and 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 we could have a blast. So you've got an open invite. Um, if you make it over here, shout me a, shoot me a note and we'll uh, we'll get you chasing them. I appreciate that, Paul. And right back at you. If you ever find yourself heading to the West, you know who to call. All right, brother. Hey, thanks for your time. Yep. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. See you, Paul. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland podcast. Quick reminder that this episode was brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA Shotguns, Gumleaf USA, Dogtra Collars, ESP Hearing Protection, Trinity Kennels, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to visit projectupland.com to read, watch, and listen to more great upland hunting content. And please, if you enjoyed this episode of the show, leave the podcast a rating and a review that really helps us out and it helps more people find the show. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Up and Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.